Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We talk a lot about deconstructing and reconstructing our faith here at Restore. Now, if you aren't familiar with those terms, I want you to think of your faith as a house made of bricks. Now, when I say your faith, I mean your beliefs, your spiritual practices, your church background, your religious community, etc. All of that wrapped into one is your faith. And your faith, I want you to think of it like a house made of bricks. The foundation was most likely built when you were young, whether through directly growing up in church or just being exposed to it through relationships and media. Those early spiritual beliefs and practices were the first bricks put in place, and they serve as the foundation for your house of faith. Then as you grew up, you got older, you, you read things, you heard things, you were exposed to different people and ideas, and as this was happening, you were adding bricks to your house of faith, building it up higher and higher. Now, if you grew up in church, your house of faith was most likely constructed in a very specific way based on your parents, your pastor, possibly your denomination. You see, certain people have certain bricks that they feel very strongly about. And they do everything they can to ensure that those beliefs are passed down to the next generation. If these beliefs were handed to you by someone that you trusted, those bricks are probably holding a foundational place in your house of faith. Let me give you an example. My great-grandmother grew up Southern Baptist. For her, not drinking alcohol and not dancing with boys were foundational bricks right alongside the resurrection of Jesus Christ in her house of faith. Now, she didn't come up with that belief system on her own, and she certainly didn't read it in the Bible. It's simply not there. She was taught it by someone who felt very strongly about it and that she trusted a great deal. And it was also the prevailing belief in her community. She had no reason to question it for a long time. This process of adding bricks to your house of faith is called construction. And during construction, you are quite literally building your house of faith, brick by brick by brick. And then, somewhere along the way, you begin to have questions about one or more of these bricks. Something you believed or practiced bumps up against something you learn or an experience you have, and you find yourself unable to reconcile the two. This happens for all sorts of reasons. Maybe like my great-grandmother, you tried a sip of alcohol and didn't immediately descend into a life of debauchery. And so you had some questions. Why is this brick a foundational part of my house of faith? Maybe you took a biology class And you came to believe that the processes of evolution and adaptation were actually scientific fact. Maybe the political party that had always gone hand in hand with your faith tradition started doing things that conflicted with your Christian values. Or maybe the parent or pastor who spent your childhood emphasizing the importance of morality was unmasked 
as someone who was actually completely immoral. When these things happen, we have a choice. Do you believe what you've always believed and do what you've always done, or do you make a change? In keeping with this house of faith metaphor, we are forced to take the brick out of its place, hold it up for examination, and then decide whether we want to put it back in, completely throw it away, or replace it with something better and truer. This is the process called deconstruction. Everyone goes through it to some degree. It is a universal experience. The only difference is the unique decisions each of us make with every brick we examine and what we choose to do with our overall house of faith. Some people have tried to ask questions. They've tried to walk through a process of deconstruction, but have consistently been met with a response like, don't ask that, just have more faith. These folks start to shove their questions down or just pretend that they don't have any. Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan monk and an expert on deconstruction, says this almost always leads to people becoming angry and rigid and unhappy. Other people, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, go through such an intense deconstruction process, usually due to deep religious trauma, that they essentially throw every brick away and the entire house crumbles down. This is called demolition. Our goal at Restore is to avoid both of those polarized destinations. Instead, we want to walk with people through deconstruction and through that journey by creating a safe place to doubt, to ask questions, and to be open about what you're going through. Realizing that sometimes you'll take a brick out, examine it, and decide to keep it. Sometimes you will discard it completely, and sometimes you replace it with a new brick that more accurately reflects the truth. This process is called reconstruction. And I truly believe that creating spaces where anyone and everyone can be fully loved and fully accepted as they walk through the processes of deconstruction and reconstruction in community is a core function of any healthy church. Now, you may not realize it, But this process is actually modeled in Scripture. There's an amazing story in the Bible that depicts Jesus walking two of his disciples through a process of deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. He helps them identify their current beliefs and practices, discern which ones are false, which ones are true, and then take the false ones out and replace them with the truth. This occurs at a somewhat obscure point in the life of Jesus. It's after he has risen from the grave as we celebrated last Sunday on Easter, but it's before he ascends into heaven. Now, we often skip over these stories of Jesus and his followers after the resurrection, but before the ascension, because we usually think of the timeline as something like this. Jesus is born, Jesus lives, Jesus dies, Jesus rises again, Jesus ascends into heaven, And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and the first church is launched out. But there is this time, this really sweet, beautiful time, actually, that lives in between the resurrection and the ascension that deeply informs who that first church was that got launched out not long after and what they were all about. 
And subsequently, it should also form who we are and what we are all about as the church today. And when I say the church, y'all, I'm not talking about Restore or, or any specific congregation. I'm talking about Christians all over the world, one big family. So for the next three weeks, leading up to our next outdoor gathering on Sunday, May 2nd, that Ivor just talked about, we will look at three times that the resurrected Jesus appeared to the people before he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. This morning, our story is found in Luke's account of Jesus' life. Chapter 24. You can turn there or you can follow along with the verses on the screen. Chapter 24 of Luke. This story is often called the road to Emmaus because it takes place as two followers of Jesus are traveling from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus on that same day that Jesus was risen from the dead, that that first Easter Sunday about 2,000 years ago. According to scripture, Jesus visits people about 10 different times after the resurrection, including one time to more than 500 people. In a letter to the early church in the city of Corinth, Paul writes this, I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. He goes on to talk about when he himself, Paul, encountered the risen Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, because while this story of Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus provides biblical proof of the resurrection, that is not this story's primary purpose. Or to say it another way, if this story was not included in scripture at all, we would still have tons of eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So if proof of the resurrection is not this story's primary purpose, why did Luke include it? Moreover, why did Luke, a historian known for concise recording of events that included little or no commentary and even little or no detail, spend 23 verses depicting this encounter between Jesus and these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? I believe It's because during this encounter, Jesus walks these two disciples through a process of deconstruction and reconstruction that goes on to shape the first church and the entire church in substantial ways. Luke wanted to make sure that this story was preserved for his readers and for every other Christian who follows in their footsteps, including us today, because he knew just how vitally important this process is for each and every one of us. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, these two verses, it feels like we're kind of jumping in to the middle of a story because we sort of are. Luke's reference to the same day and two of them and everything that had happened indicate our need to backtrack a little bit for context as to what is going on, which, side note, is always a good idea when you're reading scripture. Backtrack, find the context. So here's what happens in the verses right before. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. So... When Luke says that same day, two of them were going to Emmaus, he means the same day those female disciples found the empty tomb and reported it to the male disciples who didn't believe it. Two of them, we later find out, are two male disciples, and they are talking about all that has transpired with Jesus in Jerusalem over the last week. And it was a momentous week. He rode into town on Palm Sunday. He flipped over tables in the temple. He shared his last supper with his closest friends. He was betrayed by Judas. He was illegally arrested, unjustly tried, and then executed on a criminal's cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, that was quite a week in and of itself. But now, Jesus' body is gone from the tomb where they laid him. He is missing. They don't know where he is. The female disciples are claiming that angels told them Jesus has risen from the dead, but these two guys... And the other male disciples, they, they don't really buy it. They don't understand it. They don't think it's true. Now, they also don't know who this mysterious stranger is who approaches them as they are walking down the road to Emmaus, trying to make sense of the craziest week in history. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. I love the sass from Cleopas here, right? He looks at Jesus and he basically says, have you been living under a rock? You are, must be the only person in Jerusalem that hasn't heard about what has happened. One of my favorite things about the biblical authors is how authentically they present people. They don't pretend these folks have it all together or that they aren't predisposed to some pettiness and some sass on occasion. But here's the thing about Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. Almost everyone knew what had happened, but almost no one understood why. Let me say that again. Almost everyone knew what had happened. In Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, but almost no one understood why. Now, Jesus continues to feign ignorance as well. He says, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But listen to this part. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to rescue Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So Cleopas and his friend aren't just swapping stories about what has taken place over the last few days. They are trying to understand, and they are struggling. Now, they are struggling because this is their own process of deconstruction. Because you see, one of their, actually many of their, longest held beliefs had bumped up against something they had just experienced, and they could not reconcile the two. You see, they believed the Messiah was going to be a military leader, but then he wasn't. He was an, he was an itinerant, untrained rabbi from a town that no one liked. They thought the Messiah was going to defeat Rome, but then he died on a Roman cross at the hands of the Roman government. They thought the Messiah was going to rally the Israelites together, but in the end, the Israelites chanted for him to be crucified. Remember what they said, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to rescue Israel. These disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus, examining these long-held beliefs brick by brick. They believe that Jesus' purpose was to rescue Israel from captivity to the occupying Romans. That's ultimately why they left everything behind to travel along with him and why they were so excited when he made his way into Jerusalem the week before. They thought this was the beginning of the process of him kicking out the Romans. They believed, as did many others who traveled with Jesus, that he was going to ride into Jerusalem, raise up an army, and drive the Romans out of their land. That's why when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people called him Son of David in reference to the warrior king of Israel and chanted Hosanna, which literally is translated, save us, savior. Uh, they weren't asking Jesus to save them by sending them to heaven when they die. As we've talked about many times before, they didn't have those celestial categories at this point. They were asking Jesus to take up the sword like King David and save them right then and right there from the Romans. Even Jesus' closest disciples, his two closest friends echoed this sentiment. James and John said, when you sit on your glorious throne, Jesus, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. They weren't talking about a heavenly throne. They were asking to be his right hand men after he kicked out the Romans and enthroned himself as the king of Israel. Seeing Jesus as the conquering king who would save Israel from Rome was the prevailing belief among those who followed them, followed Jesus. And many of them, these two guys included, had given up everything because of this belief. Can you imagine how hard it would be to have a belief like that become unreconcilable with something you experience? If you've had to deconstruct some of your long-held beliefs, you know exactly how hard that can be. You can understand why when Jesus asked them what they were doing, Luke says they stood still with their faces downcast. But thank God, Jesus doesn't just leave us or them out in the cold to walk through our deconstruction alone. He enters into it. Verse 25. O foolish ones, how slow are your hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is Jesus telling the the meta-narrative of scripture, the big story. If you've been with us a while, you may remember we spent an entire year walking through the meta-narrative as a church a few years ago. It only takes Jesus a few minutes on the road to Emmaus, but he's Jesus, so I don't feel that bad about it. But before he walks them through scripture, Jesus rebukes them. Now, it's not a rebuke for doubting or for deconstructing. He rebukes them for trying to hold on to beliefs that are self-centered and dogmatic instead of embracing the truth that he's been trying to show them all along. There's a New Testament scholar named Joel Green, and he comments on this verse by saying, slow of heart calls to attention their failure to orient themselves fully around Jesus' teaching, not to their need merely for remedial education. Heart refers here to the inner commitments, the dispositions and attitudes of a person that determines his or her her life. Failure of insight comes from failure to embrace the ways of God. They had failed to embrace the way of Jesus because they had a fundamental misunderstanding of who he was and what he was all about. So Jesus explains it to them. He walks them through the scriptures and he shows them that what they had just experienced is not only the truth, but it had been the plan all along. The Messiah came to suffer and die. He came to invite evil and death to do their worst to him so he could conquer them once and for all. He came to take every sin upon himself so that he could recycle it into forgiveness for all of humankind. Jesus is walking Cleopas and his friend through a process of deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. He is helping them identify the false beliefs they are holding on to and replace them with the truth. They were reading scripture through a nationalistic lens, which led them to believe that Jesus was going to be a militant warrior when he was actually going to be a suffering savior. They wrongly assumed that Jesus dying on the cross prevented him from saving them. But the cross was actually the means by which he saved not only them, but the entire world. Through this process of reconstructing their faith, Jesus is giving them a new lens through which to understand scripture himself. The words and works of Jesus are the filter through which we should run everything. That's what Jesus is teaching these two guys. As Canadian pastor Bruxy Cavey likes to say, we read scripture not as our endpoint destination. We open up our Bibles to have a supernatural rendezvous with the word of God who is Jesus. He becomes the center of our biblical exegesis so that we read all of scripture with Jesus in mind. Now, if you are familiar with that term, biblical exegesis, it simply means the lens through which we understand and interpret the Bible. Jesus is reconstructing the belief systems of these two disciples and of every other Christian, including us, who would come after them. He is deepening their understanding of who he is and what he is all about. See, Jesus wasn't just rescuing Israel, he was rescuing the whole world. 
He wasn't just taking back the throne from Rome. He was declaring himself king of kings and lord of lords. He wasn't just overthrowing the evil intentions of the men who wanted him dead. He was overthrowing evil itself. He wasn't, his death wasn't the end of life for him. It was the beginning of life for us. Jesus was doing something so much bigger than they could have imagined. And these two guys, they can't get enough of it. So when they arrive in Emmaus, they beg Jesus to stay with them. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Then they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? This is a powerful moment for these two disciples. They see Jesus for who he really is as they work through this difficult process of deconstruction and reconstruction. I want to say that again so you don't miss it. They see Jesus for who Jesus really is through the difficult process of deconstruction and reconstruction. This is always the goal of deconstructing and reconstructing our faith, to see Jesus for who he really is and begin to understand what he really is all about. And the story ends with the two disciples jumping up from their dinner and taking off back down the road to Emmaus toward Jerusalem where they'd just come from. They meet up with the other disciples who are still in hiding and they tell them everything that has happened. By that time, Jesus has also appeared to Peter and he's there sharing his story as well. Jesus reconstructed their faith and he gives them the lens through which they can continue that process. And by extension, he gives us the lens through which we can understand scripture and properly deconstruct and reconstruct our faith. He showed that nationalism has no place in Christianity because Jesus came to bring salvation to the whole world. He showed that his suffering and death actually revealed his power instead of diminishing it. And that all of scripture is to be understood through the lens of his words and his work. Earlier I said that these two disciples on the road to Emmaus failed to embrace the way of Jesus because they had a fundamental misunderstanding of who he was and what he was all about. So I want to wrap up our time together this morning by asking ourselves a difficult question. How often is that true of us? What fundamental misunderstandings about Jesus are we clinging to? What part of our faith, our house of faith, needs deconstructing and reconstructing? Through his work with the disciples on that road to Emmaus, Jesus has shown us that there are three important things that we need when working through a process of deconstruction and reconstruction. The first one is healthy community. 
Now, this process is hard enough. Don't make it even harder by trying to go through it alone. Deconstructing and reconstructing with people around you, like Cleopas and his friend, it divides the burden because other people help you carry it. But the community must be a healthy one. You see, if the community is toxic, the difficulty of the process will actually be multiplied instead of divided. Now, here's a way to recognize a toxic community. If your community responds to your questions by telling you to have more faith, it's toxic. If your community equates doubt with sin, it's toxic. If your community ever says that God hates you or any other human, it's toxic. Run from toxic community, but please don't turn your back on community completely. We need it. We were not built for deconstruction or reconstruction or this life in general. We were not built to do it alone. Now, we are far, far, far from perfect, but I am really proud of the healthy community we have here at Restore. So if you don't have anyone to walk through this process with you, we would be honored to do so. So that's number one, healthy community. Number two is scripture. Now, a lot of folks want to throw away scripture when they are deconstructing, and I totally understand why. I do. Through this process, we often realize the way in which the Bible has been perverted and used to oppress and marginalize people. And we get so frustrated by the way that it has been perverted and messed up that we just want to throw it all away. But the answer is not throwing a scripture away. The answer is learning to read and understand it better. We've talked about this a lot over the years, but I'm always happy to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with any of y'all about what it looks like, how you can learn to read and understand scripture appropriately, correctly, the way that it was originally intended and equip you with resources to do so. So I'm always happy to do that. Reach out if you'd like to know more about that. So number one, healthy community. Number two, scripture. And then last is Jesus. And at the risk of sounding cliche, this is the most important one. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which everything else is built. He is the lens through which we understand all things. Scripture teaches that the fullness of God has been revealed to us in Jesus. So that means if anything in our house of faith contradicts the words or works of Jesus, we must choose Jesus. When we take out each brick and examine it, Jesus must be the filter through which we decide whether to keep it or throw it away or replace it with something new. Now, like I said earlier, this process is difficult and it's often painful. But I want you to always remember walking through deconstruction and reconstructing with Jesus by our side is so much better than pretending we never have any doubts. I am more convinced every day that if the church in America cares at all about stemming the tide of people leaving Christianity, we need to do a whole lot less shaming doubters and a whole lot more shepherding people through deconstruction and reconstruction. And because of that, Restore will always be a church where you can walk through this process in community.
And just like our welcome video says, we will always be a safe place to doubt, to ask questions, and be open about what you're going through. You do not have to walk through this alone. We are with you. And even more importantly, Jesus is with you too. Now let's pray. Lord God, what a story. I thank you for the way that you showed up for those two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. That you did not leave them to wallow alone in their deconstruction. You showed up, you opened up the scriptures and you walked them through it so sweetly and so beautifully. And I pray for me, I pray for us, every single person that is walking through a process of deconstruction and reconstruction. God, we pray that like those two guys on the road to Emmaus, you would show up. You would come close. You would walk next to us during this process. You would help us as we open up scripture, as in community we wrestle with these questions, as we doubt, as we, be, as we are open about what we're going through, what we're struggling with, as we pull out brick by brick this house of faith and examine everyone to see, is this true? Is this something I should hold on to or is this something that needs replacing? God, be there with us. We beg you. And we believe truly that you are, that you show up faithfully when we open our eyes and we look for you. That's why I pray you would alert us to your presence as we walk through this process, wherever we are, and help us realize that it's a journey. It's not something with this endpoint destination that someday we'll get to and we'll never have another question again. We'll never uh, balance another doubt again, God. Help us realize that this lifelong journey is one of humility, one of seeking, and one of learning, and one that you are always walking with us. That's why I pray, we pray, you would make yourself clear to us as we do this. We pray that you keep our church a safe place where people can walk through this process and find hope and joy and deep abiding faith through you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.